Without the strains of One More Once by Michelle Camillo's band uh, bring us into a whole world of jazz once more. Welcome indeed to this, the 28th episode in the Hotbox Saga. And especially welcome if you've only just found us here on the jazzireland.ie website or maybe as a podcast on iTunes. Who knows? Well, this time around, the title has sort of emerged and it's alt big bands, the alt being recognition of the fact that there's a group of bands that were what you might describe as slightly left of field. And maybe they are in danger of slipping off the radar of jazz fans today, which would be a shame. And the reason, again, for doing big bands is that we get a great reaction from listeners every time we wheel out those aggregations of 15 or 18 or even 22 musicians all blowing. So in the hope that there's a renaissance of big bands, not to mention the hope that we might see more big bands active here in Ireland, here goes. No Basie, no Ellington, no Thad Jones, not even the big fat band. But there is Claude Thornhill. Thank you. 
was Where or When, of course, from Claude Thornhill's 1930s band. A uh, very lovely, smooth band. We'll talk some more about it as we go. Um, although Thornhill was known primarily as a composer and arranger, and he had arranged already for both Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman, everyone knows, don't they, uh, the Goodman hit Loch Lomond, which was arranged by Thornhill. Um, uh, Thornhill tended to leave most of the arranging for his band to others. That's when he finally got around to launching his own band in 1940. And it must be said that part of the continuing interest in Thornhill's band, such as it is, derives from the person who was the chief arranger for much of that time, none other than Gil Evans, later, of course, to find fame and, well, possibly fortune, but probably not, with Miles Davis. Um, Evans said of Thornhill's musical sound, the sound hung like a cloud, and so it did. This was their theme tune, Snowfall.
the highly descriptive Snowfall theme tune of Thornhill, um, Thornhill's band. It was his own composition, and that, of course, as usual, was him playing the piano. He was well-known as a piano player, but he didn't really play uh, the way most other people played. He either played that very kind of uh, impressionistic style, or he played kind of boogie-woogie. Well, time was, of course, not on the side of this band, as the Second World War was already raging in Europe and would come soon to the USA. Nor was Thornhill an innocent in 1940. He'd already experienced life with the big bands, as I said, and he was so familiar that um, he launched the band in Westchester County, um, the Glen Island Casino, a famous place. There is something still there, I believe. Uh, That was the very place where Glenn Miller's band suddenly became the sensation of the pop music world in 1939. Uh, I just might digress here to mention an anecdote from Thornhill's highly successful residency in that same venue in 1941. On Sunday, December the 7th, 1941, the band was assembling on stage when a waiter ran up and shouted, The Japs have just bombed Pearl Harbor! And a voice from the back of the band was heard to say, Who's Pearl Harbor? Yeah, okay, fine. Despite the band not knowing that Pearl Harbor was an it and not a who, their success at that time was threatened as almost at once call-ups and enlistment to the military began amongst the band members, including eventually Thornhill himself. And the band was disbanded, of course. It had to be, really. It was to re-emerge in 1946 with several members of the old band, and Gil Evans came back too. If the pre-war band had looked backwards, uh, which some people think it did, uh, the post-war band looked really definitively forwards. And to many music fans nowadays, it's this second iteration of the band that made Thornhill important in jazz history. Well, much of the music clearly anticipates the post-bebop revolution and the emergence of cool in the hands of Miles Davis, with Gil Evans and Jerry Mulligan, Mulligan Mulligan himself being a member of this band for a period. Thank you. 
Apples there from the second chapter of the Claude Thornhill Band, and here's another recording from the same time. This is called Buster's Last Stand.
Dust, and we're still listening to Claude Thornhill. This was the second iteration of the band in the post-war period. He himself, uh, by all accounts, was a very shy and retiring man. He never really got to know or mix with the band members. Jerry Mulligan, uh, who talked extensively about his time with Thornhill, um, he said that whenever they found themselves kind of accidentally together, uh, it became very embarrassing. They kind of ummed and ahed and walked around each other and really had nothing to say to one another, which is extraordinary when you think about it. And so, in a way, that doesn't surprise one that the band kind of dribbled to an end um, by lacking any kind of impetus from the boss. It was a shame, really. But let's hear their valedictory piece, a Thornhill composition again, and this one is very accurately called Let's Call It A Day.
call it a day. Well, we're not going to call it a day uh, just yet here in the hot box. That was Claude Thornhill. We've been talking about him all the way and playing some of his music. A band that really didn't swing very much, although it's funny that if you read all the biogs and the quotes from the musicians who actually played in it, they all said that it could swing if it wanted to. Well, another band that emerged just as Thornhill's disappeared was that of Stan Kenton. And again, it it might be regarded as left of field, usually preferring to perfect a sound with a complex structure rather than to swing in the conventional sense. Kenton and Thornhill could not have been more different as people. Thornhill, a total introvert, and Kenton, an unapologetic extrovert. And the bands tended to reflect that. I've pulled a 1958 recording out which perfectly illustrates the sound of Kenton, uh, just as Thornhill experimented with having French horns to fill that gap between the trumpets and the trombone, so Kenton had French horns. But also, on this occasion, he had two baritone saxes and two bass trombones. And one of the baritones actually takes a solo on this track. This is Bill Robinson. You'll hear him in soloing in Whatever Lola Wants. Lola once the Stan Kenton Orchestra. And of course, Kenton's uh, influence on the music was considerable, and his extroversion and sheer brashness made a bigger mark than Thornhill ever could have done. We're barely scratching the surface of Kenton in this show. The arranger for this 1958 set was the alto player Lenny Nyhouse, and this is his fine arrangement of a 
ballad torch song every time we say goodbye and you'll hear Jack Sheldon soloing on the trumpet For our third visit uh, to this left-of-field big band music, uh, we're going to head to Hollywood and the band of Billy May. Only very briefly and fairly disastrously was this ever a full-time touring unit. I think May was struggling with alcohol at the time. But May, of course, used the very best Los Angeles musicians, and uh, you will find him and them behind some of Frank Sinatra's greatest albums, including Come Fly With Me. You'll also find the band behind Ella Fitzgerald for one of the songbook series of masterpieces. You'll hear them behind Nat King Cole, behind Rosemary Clooney, Bing Crosby, 
and indeed more or less anyone who was anyone. In that last uh, 1950s, early 60s push from the West Coast, mostly uh, for this type of sound, uh, before the rising tide of rock and roll shoved this kind of music into the nostalgia category. I pulled out two particular Billy May albums from 1958 and 1963, and the first one is Billy May's Big Fat Brass. And the second one will be Bill's Bag, but we'll hear a bit from Big Fat Brass right now. a band. Pawn Ticket from the 1958 Billy May session, the same year indeed as Sinatra and May's massive hit, Come Fly With Me, which I mentioned earlier. Well, this album was given the name Big Fat Brass, and the words big and fat certainly describe the band, augmented as it was by beyond the usual five trumpets, four trombones and five saxes. A bit more detail on that later. Here they are, in full flow again, positively wallowing in that great standard autumn leaves. Big 
Certainly, uh, it was one of the best-sounding units of the 1950s. By 1963, Billy May had taken on board some new jazz directions and he was very much looking forward, not backwards. So the album uh, nodded to current jazz composers such as Bobby Timmons, Wayne Shorter, Horace Silver and, in this case, the singer and lyricist Oscar Brown Jr. Dad Dare. Dare, uh, written by Bobby Timmons, and uh, of course the lyrics, which we didn't hear, were by Oscar Brown Jr. Uh, May also investigated Benny Golson's wonderful standard, uh, which I'm sure you've heard in many different ways. Uh, this is Whisper Knot. Whisper Knot. 
but not. And the 1963 album from which that is taken, uh, Bill's Bag, it was subtitled Jazz Standards of Tomorrow that are happening today. Not sure anyone would write a title like that these days, would they? It was recorded in Hollywood and the soloists uh, that were available on the whole bunch of tracks on that album. Don Fagerquist was his regular trumpet soloist. Dave Wells and Lou McGarry on bass trumpets. Now, I don't know. I don't know what a bass trumpet is. Uh, It says bass trumpet on the sleeve, and I'm wondering if that's what we now call a flugelhorn. Uh, Answers to donald at jazzireland.ie, please. And Paul Horn, the appropriately named Paul Horn, solos on both alto and flute. Justin Gordon is the tenor player. Oh, and I should say, as promised, the normal big band complement was augmented by a French horn section and one or maybe even two tubers. And here they are again, one of Billy May's uh, many musical jests, often a teeny bit of cynicism thrown in. This is called Miles Behind. Thank you. 
miles behind. Uh, we close the chapter on Billy May now, going back to the 1958 set with another of his own compositions. This one is called Ping Pong, and the soloist on this is Paul Smith. Many people will be familiar with Paul Smith because he was for many years an accompanist for Ella Fitzgerald and a marvellous piano player, perhaps underappreciated by jazz historians. So this is Ping Pong. <laughs> possible that uh, some more eager listeners will be complaining about lack of conventional swing from the swing era at this stage. So we'll finish our skirmish with what I'm calling left-of-field big bands by taking a quick look into the 1930s and the band of Jimmy Lunsford. It's always intrigued me, this one, because Lunsford was a school music teacher. He formed a big band with his students and eventually turned the whole thing professional and went on the road. Surely a kind of storybook thing rather than reality, but it definitely was real. He enjoyed several years of success with it in the mid-1930s before his uh, tragic and untimely death from a heart attack at just 45 years old and the band really didn't survive that. They tried to keep it going for a little while but it didn't work. The popular, uh, the band has never quite gained the recognition that's enjoyed by the other black bands of the era, notably of course Ellington and Basie but also that of Fletcher Henderson. But Lunsford's uh, was a really fabulous swinging unit, and here's a swinger from them. It's called Blues in the Groove.
Blues in the Groove uh, from the pen of Eddie Durham, as was the next one, descriptively titled Swinging in Sea. Just as uh, Lunsford is perhaps overshadowed by others, so uh, Eddie Durham is one of the more overlooked musicians from the swing era of jazz. He was an early experimental player with the electric guitar, and in fact, pretty certainly he was the first person ever to record using an electrically amplified guitar, as well as being an in-demand and fine trombonist, and as well as composing and arranging for the top bands, including Basie, Benny Moten, Benny Goodman, and, as in this case, Jimmy Lunsford. My doctor tells me I should always go through life swinging, so we should place the lid back on the hot box for now after swinging in sea with that fine band from Jimmy Lunsford. This hot box has tried to concentrate on the sound of the bands rather than on any solo brilliance, and I hope it's illuminated those bands that sought to appeal that way in an era when big band music was primarily for dancing and when it was the pop music that young people aspired to of the day. Happily, there are still a few musicians around who want to try to thrill us with big band sounds in the modern context, and I'll say, bring them on. And for now, though, if you have been, thanks for listening. <laughs>